You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Ulf Ekberg, one of the founding members of Ace of Base, along with Jonas, Jenny and Marlin or Lynn Berggren, co-wrote most of the tracks on their debut album, Happy Nation, which included the hits All That She Wants and Wheel of Fortune, and subsequently gave the band worldwide success. At the height of their fame in 93, stories appeared in the Swedish press, revealing Ulf's past as part of a neo-Nazi band when he was between the ages of 13 and 16. He subsequently expressed his regret as to that involvement and has said many times that he does not agree with any extremist views. In 1994, The Sign became the best-selling single in America. One morning that year, back in Sweden, Jenny woke up at her parents' home with a stalker holding a knife to her neck, and she and her mother suffered a shocking attack. This is Ulf's story, his regret for his past, the effect on the whole of the band of that knife attack, and, of course, the story of the third best-selling act to come out of Sweden, Ace of Base. Well, hi, Ulf. I mean, this has been a, 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 I don't know, it's been a lifetime ago that I was in Gothenburg and I was in a bar uh, for MTV and that is where I met Ace of Base and you were there, of course, um, a yeah. long, long, long uh, time ago. You're looking very smart in a suit. You just said that you've been to see your lawyer, so I guess the suit was for the lawyer, not for me. Oh, well, sometimes I do dress up, not only in T-shirts and other things, but uh, I like to, to dress up a little bit. Yeah, I've been with my lawyers today, running a little bit back and forth, and it's beautiful uh, spring, spring day in Stockholm, sun is out, and, and everybody's very happy to, um, to uh, get out of the uh, COVID times and winter times. So let me take you back to Gothenburg. Um, when I do this podcast, I always talk about the, the, the very early years of people and what sort of music their parents listen to and uh, when your musical tastes changed and what did they go to? How did they diverge from your parents? Yeah, that's a big diversion because my father was a jazz fan. He only had this um, very thick... Um, it was not vinyl, but well, it was kind of vinyl, but it was different material. You couldn't bend them, you know, these old from the 50s and the 60s. Um, and uh, he had a lot of records at home and he listened to a lot of jazz music. Uh, my grandfather on my mother's side, he played a lot of piano, more classical music. So I didn't really have a lot of pop culture from home, um, but I developed my own pop culture um, from actually hearing ABBA in the 70s and then Kraftwerk 1979 when I was a little small little kid, uh, nine years old. Uh, so that was very completely different from my, my parents' music. However, my father was a computer engineer already in the 70s. So he bought me a Commodore 20 and I got very excited to program. And uh, my first program I did was a synthesizer. So that matched very well with Kraftwerk. And when they came out with Computer World, Computer Welt in German, um, it was really, for me, it was like, being religious. I just saw these computers taking over the world. You can do everything with them, including fantastic music. So it was kind of inspired by my dad, but not through the music, but through his profession. Were they culturally aware? I mean, I know you say your dad was into jazz music. Um, I don't know what, you know, you presumably were brought up by your dad and mum. I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, okay. Uh, were they culturally aware of what was, what was going on? 
in in the music scene in Sweden? Uh, no, not at all. My mother, she's a child psychologist, or was, and my father uh, was a, was a, was a mathematics and, and computer engineer. So they were very isolated in their world. Uh, what they could hear of the that time modern music, or um, well, it was not that modern music, but it was obviously synth music and and so forth, the pop culture was a lot of noise from my bedrooms way too late in the evenings. So uh, they, I don't think there was a good start for them to like the pop culture uh, uh, early 80s because it was just loud music that woke them up in the middle of the night. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned, so, two, you mentioned yeah. two bands there, ABBA, of course. Uh, um, you know, I mean, forever uh, connected with uh, uh, Sweden, Eurovision, and actually uh, were for a long period um, not that popular in Sweden, which was seems mm. quite weird today, yeah. uh, considering how big they are. And the other one, of course, uh, Kraftwerk. Kraftwerk from Dusseldorf uh, in Germany. Now, that album came out in 78, and you would have been eight years old. Uh, the ABBA won the Eurovision Song Contest when you were four. Um, when was it that you actually got into Kraftwerk? Because I, 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 if I look back at an eight-year-old me, you know, I think I was listening to, I don't know, some really dreadful crap at that point. <laughs> well, I think it comes down to that we had uh, friends of mine in my class, their big brothers, they started to listen to Kraftwerk. So that's, I think, when I was in their home, I thought they were cool guys, their big brothers, they were two years older. Uh, so I kind of, that's how I got into the to the synth music. They were like, they loved synth music. And of course, when Depeche Mode came out, 81, so I was speaking spell, it was just a wow moment for all of us. It was all inspired by friends, big brothers. So I what appealed say. to you about ABBA? Um, well, um, I, I, I just loved the melodies. And then uh, I didn't really follow the, the media storm around ABBA, how bad it was, because I didn't read the newspapers that much. But of course, I have realized afterwards, uh, especially when we became uh, successful, when you start studying ABBA's history, that people basically had the ABBA albums hidden behind the stereos, didn't have them among the other uh, vinyls. And basically, there was not one positive word written about ABBA until 1990. Uh, and then they had this movie coming out in in uh, Australia, which I don't remember the name of now. But then uh, Polar and Polygram decided to do this ABBA Gold uh, album, which became number one everywhere. And suddenly everybody came out being ABBA fans forever. So that was kind of a refreshing moment, 1990, which actually helped us quite a lot because then suddenly everybody talked about ABBA again. And there were four people. We were four people. The two guys wrote the songs. There was one blonde, brunette, one blonde. And uh, I was together with Jenny just before the band uh, started and Jonas was the big brother. So we were family, they were family. So it's a lot of um, um, common grounds and of course pop from Sweden. So it, it did help us that everybody, it was quite a boring question though to have that uh, everywhere in the world. How does it feel to be compared to ABBA? And the answer was always the same. It's, uh, it's, it's very flattering and honored. Yeah. What, what did your parents want you to do in your life when you were young? Uh, well, they put both academics. I, I'm a little bit now when I still I have three kids myself. Uh, they all they 18, 16, and 14. Uh, obviously, very much in the age where I I should have taken um, you know if I could study or take whatever path. Um, I'm surprised they didn't push me more to be academic because I think they were very pushed by their parents 
to actually study and and go to you know all, all these uh, high schools and and be oh, specialized in se different sectors and maybe because they were so pressured and that was a different time in the 50s and so forth uh, they didn't put enough pressure on me and it was kind of the 80s was quite wild in Sweden and uh, I, I, I wish they actually did push me more but on the other hand I wouldn't start to do music the way I did if they would have pushed me so I'm not not happy they didn't but I have to rethink this now when I have kids how much to push and not push and how to see what are they really interested in and so it's a it's a fine balance of everything. I mean you come from a very what seems to be a very stable a very intelligent family and yet and i know this is a an, an area you don't really want to talk about but i want to ask one question only you had a flirtation with the extreme right in a band called commit suicide and you've you know you've denounced uh extremism since and you said uh that that was a mistake i think those both things are true aren't they that you've done those yeah um but it just sort of seems to me how does you know a guy from a very nice what seems to be you know a middle class intelligent family mother a psychologist father a computer programmer how does a, a teenager suddenly have an, a, a flirtation um yeah with the extreme right how do, how does that come about yeah i mean it's a it's a good question and i i've been thinking about it a lot myself and it's it, the easy answer is my relationship with my dad have always been uh, a, a very bad one oh, unfortunately he passed a few months ago but um, he was very sick the last 15 years, so we never had the time to really talk through the problems I had with him. Uh, so it actually lasted all our lives. Um, I would probably, I was, I, I left home when I was 16 and I, I didn't speak to my parents for many years. And uh, I was lost and I, I was looking for a father, father uh, um, um, profile in uh, in very dark uh, areas and i obviously in the end i didn't i realized i didn't find it so i i left this shit but i did uh, um uh, ended up in uh, in, uh, in very in a very very bad association with very bad people for for a few years when i was a teenager and that's a big mistake which uh, i I'm, I'm very sorry i did uh, and i learned a lot from it and uh, it made me i think stronger when I realized I was so wrong, but I can actually make a wrong right and left it and did something positive about, about the whole situation instead. But you can see that and when people are, uh, I think when they are weak and when they are confused, uh, it's easy to, to, to catch them up. I mean, right uh, um, winged or left winged or, or extreme uh, gangs we see today, we have a huge problem with that in Sweden, for example, it's kind of the same thing that you actually end up looking for a family looking for respect and uh, it's it's sad it's happening in such a I mean what broad uh, part of, of a lot of different cultures not only in Sweden of course I, I think it's it's everywhere in the world where you have this gang, gang pro problematics so I mean it of course it did definitely help me to have some kind of stability from home even though I didn't have a relation with my father to, to actually leave my my wrongdoings uh, at the same time um, it's it's it shouldn't happen in uh, in a life uh, that I had which is was I was as you said from a middle class smart people I had everything really served for me to be good in, we, we lived in an okay area but uh, I still fucked it up so <laughs> but okay. uh, thank God I I, I, uh, I realized that in time and I could leave it 
Okay, I'll move on from that. There's your father taught you computer programming when you were 11, I heard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is absolutely insane. <laughs> I mean, this is did you really yeah. understand it at 11? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, he was, he was, that part actually on my dad was very good. So he, he started to study mathematics with me when I was four and five already. So uh, I learned the seven and eighth grade mathematics when I was, before I even started school, which was, good at the same time it was kind of bad because when i came to school i was very bored because i knew all these things so uh, but he, he was that, on that part of it was very good so for me computers were very exciting so the first program language i learned was basic then i learned some a little more advanced one called machine code uh, 83 uh, i haven't really programmed much since then so I, I i can't really program these days i don't think they're very relevant in these days either but it was, I mean, for me, it was very exciting uh, to be able to create something through programming. And that creativity uh, was very helpful uh, when we started to make music as well, to think creative and see what, what the goals were. And working with computer as, as the main um, base in the, in the songwriting. Were you going out with Jenny when you met Jonas or did you meet Jonas separately? I met Jonas on a, uh, either it was a Kraftwerk or a Depeche Mode concert in, in the southern Sweden, I think around in 1983, uh, because he loved synth music as well. So uh, he's two years older than me, but we connected very well at that time. And then we kept in contact. And through him, I got to know his, his sisters eventually, yes. And uh, yeah, I was together with Jenny for two years. Now, you formed a band called Tech Noir. Can you tell me about that? that band and the musical influences which came from from both of you yeah so uh this was the first experiment for mixing um uh, jonas were he loved synth music but he also loved italian italian disco uh i wasn't that fond of italian disco even though i didn't dislike it either uh, abba was definitely probably the pop phenomena we both liked but then, I mean, of course, Depeche Mode and Human Lee and Soft Cell and all these bands, they were really the unifier of, of, of our music style. So I brought a little bit the, the heavier basses and he brought a little bit more the melodies. And um, so Technar was the experiment doing kind of a more a house band, electro kind of ish uh, style of the music. Um, and uh, that later on when we, kind of realized what direction we were going uh we renamed the band to a space but a space was actually supposed to be jonas and i producing other bands as a production team so we had um, uh, in our rehearsal studio there was several different other bands i mean there was one reggae band a few um, uh, studios away and the the, the 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 walls were so thin that we played very loud music <laughs> So they came, they knocking on the door one day and said, can't we work with you on one song and see if we, we can, you know, because they heard all these very heavy basses and drums. And uh, so we started to work with them on a couple of songs and uh, they thought it was great. And we thought, why? Wow, this is cool to experiment with reggae beats in our music. So that's how we actually started to do kind of reggae influence. I, I wouldn't say that we do reggae, but people always say it's reggae, but it is a backbeat that is kind of reggae stylish, right? And, um, and, but we always saw ourselves as a house band. And we, when we performed, we always performed the, the, the fast 120, 124 BPM songs. Uh, but then suddenly people started like the, the slower songs, which was not as fun to perform with, especially not at nightclubs. 
This holiday season, the best deal in wireless can only be found at Mint Mobile. Right now, when you switch to Mint Mobile and buy any three-month plan, you'll get another three months for free. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order and activate from home with eSIM. While saving tons on phone plans starting at just 15 bucks a month. For a limited time, buy any three-month Mint Mobile plan and get three more months free by going to mintmobile.com slash save. That's mintmobile.com slash save. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash save. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. How did you finance those early days? So the great thing with, uh, well, there's two parts of that. Uh, one great thing with Sweden, which actually every songwriter, um, all the famous ones at least, and uh, a lot of the artists as well that came out in the, in the 90s and 2000s, um, is that the, uh, the Swedish school system, they allow you to do studio circles and you get funding from that to, for example, renting a, a, a rehearsal room. Uh, it's not a lot of funding, so you, it, 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 bring, it pays for the rehearsal room and music and cables. It doesn't pay for your synthesizers, especially not when you love samplers in the eight, end of the 80s and, and you know, technical stuff, because were all very expensive. So Jonas and I decided to, um, to look at how, how can we actually work as efficient as possible so we can build up the studio as fast as possible. So we were looking through all the potential jobs and the, the number one job was uh, to be a, a diver at uh, the oil platforms in Norway. Um, but the problem we realized that, that it takes like one year of education and we didn't really have the time for that, right? So the second uh, most paid job was to work also with the oil business, but to actually clean the oil um, containers. And, and, uh, and um, that's a very dangerous job, and, but it was very well paid because it was dangerous. And we got this job, extra job, because two guys before us have jumped into the wrong container without gas mask and they died. So, um, but you understand, we didn't really think so much. We just thought about the money, but we basically lived in these tanks for uh, every evening, every early morning. And we were always had like oil in the ears and the hair and, and we looked like shit, but we got a lot of money. So we can actually go back and buy these very expensive synthesizers. I mean, a sampler, Akai 1000, S1000 was 5,000 euros. And that was 1989. So it was a lot of money for us. We had no money, right? Well, our parents didn't have any money either to really spend on crazy synthesizers. So we worked a lot. And then I also started to work extra as a chef on, uh, on a ferry from uh, Gothenburg to Germany. And that was great because you got a lot of very good salary and it was only very low sea uh, tax on it as well. So we, we had double work jobs and then we put everything in the studio. And then we rented out our apartments and we moved in and we lived in this little small studio which is as big as this little room I'm sitting in now, for basically four and a half years. So, well, hang on a minute. This this sounds really weird to me. So, <laughs> you and Jonas lived in a small room uh, for four and a half yeah. years, which was a studio yeah. together. 
it doesn't matter how close yeah. you are with someone when you have that sort of close yeah. confines and even in a relationship i would think uh you're going to have arguments yeah. and you're not going to get on that can't have been uh, that can't have been easy absolutely but it was it was, it was quite uh, it was quite hysteric we, i mean we did no drugs and we had there was no red bulls at that time we only drank a lot of coffee and the coffee was so strong you could put the the uh, spoon in it, it stood up i mean it was really strong coffee and we worked uh, always 40 plus hours sometimes even 50 plus hours before we slept so sometimes you just passed out on the floor so that's why we i said we lived together because sometimes somebody slept on his chair somebody we slept on the floor because we passed out another person continued with the drum loop that's how we worked for four and a half years was constantly just working and then passing out basically <laughs> Now, your first gig was without the girls, wasn't it? What was that like? Was it terrible? Um, uh, uh, not really. I mean, we, we really got the girls involved to sing. And so really when we performed the first time uh, as a sub bass was 1990 in Gothenburg. And then the girls was with us. Yeah. But the girls were not so much involved with the songwriting. They were not involved at all with the songwriting on the first album. So they were rarely in the studio. So they came in to put some vocals. Uh, they thought the room smelled very bad when we've been there for so many hours and days and years. Um, but so but, they came in and came out. But then it's funny when you, when you think about it. So you must have been looking for voices, okay? Yeah. And the voices that you go for are his sisters and your, I don't know if she was your girlfriend at that time, but anyhow, your ex-girlfriend, let's say, and her sister. So in effect, in, in effect you're not really looking very widely. Did you, did you have no. a casting? Did you know they had talent or did you actually test them out in essence? Well, we obviously knew they were singing because Jonas and, and the girls been singing all their lives. Uh, we didn't really know that they would fit into a band. And that, that was not the purpose originally either. We, we needed somebody to put vocals on the songs. And then it was just more practical when we decided that actually we, maybe we have something now to just send it with their vocals. And it was kind of per se became the band without us really planning who should sing. So we never did the casting, no. And we never thought outside the box. It was very much in the box. <laughs> um, and it just happened naturally, I would say, because they were sisters, we knew them well, and they, they were very close by. I mean, they were only 20 minutes walk from the studio, so they could come in and put some vocals here and there. So it, it was a very practical choice. It was not very... Um, Strategic, uh, to say the least. <laughs> what did creative expression give you as a human? Uh, I think I, 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 my whole personality is very creative. So I, I, I can't live a second without trying to be creative or being creative. It's my, um, it's my soul and it's, um, uh, it's my hunger and it's my heart. It's, it's everything I do, even if it's not music or if, it, if it's other, other business. I, I'm very involved with a lot of different tech companies, but it's always in the creative nerve in it. And I'm, I always dream creativity, creative, wild, crazy ideas. And um, it's it just part of my, part of my pers persona to be creative. The day I'm not creative, I think I'm, I'm not alive anymore. I mean, one of the really fascinating things about the band is the long journey to success and the knockdowns on the way. So can you tell me a little bit about when you went out with tracks, what tracks you went out with and what reaction you got? 
Uh, yeah, for, well, obviously we started to uh, try to get a record company excited about our music in Sweden. Uh, it was the most natural thing to do. Uh, the problem was we lived in Gothenburg and uh, there was no record companies in Gothenburg. They were all based in Stockholm. And we, we didn't know anybody in Stockholm. So um, uh, it was not like we had any contacts or whatever. Um, and we did not really have any money uh, because all the money went into the studio. So we had to hitchhike with, with the trucks to Stockholm. Sometimes it could take two days to get to Stockholm. And um, this is after we, for a couple of years, have been sending demos in, in with, with posts. And um, after sending over 100 tapes, different record companies, sometimes twice to the same record company, we got one response once, and I think it was EMI. And uh, they basically sent the tape back and asked us to never send another tape. Um, that, that was the only response we ever got. We tried to call them, nobody picked up the phone. But, and then we said, we had to go there and knock on the door. Otherwise they can't, they don't listen to the tape. Um, and um, so we started to go to Stockholm and started not really knock on the doors. So we, we, had, we had nowhere to sleep. So we slept on benches in parks and, and things like that. And then every morning we were the first ones at the office to bam, 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 bam. Have you heard our demo or not you again? You know, the, yes, yeah, we won't leave until you listen to our demo. So we went through most of the record companies in Sweden. We forced them to listen to the demos. And uh, that was quite exciting uh, uh, time because nobody really thought, everybody really thought it was crap. And some, some had the guts to say it, some didn't have the balls to say it. And they, were, they, they felt sorry for us that we did so bad music. Um, some uh, gave us some directions what we're supposed to do we should start with soul music instead or other examples um, and then I think after the third or fourth trip to Stockholm um, we um, we started to look look outside Sweden because we realized nobody in Sweden likes our music um, but at the same time we started to look at at, uh, at Denmark uh, because Denmark had a, a label called Coma and they did um, licensing for KLF, Rosanna, Shaman, a lot of really cool bands out of the UK. And we really love that kind of that style. So we want to be in contact with Coma. And that was a sub-label of Mega Records, but they were based in Denmark. Um, so we kind of tried to find a way of contact them was not very successful. But at the same time, we got a, because I was DJing a little bit. So I got a vinyl from an from a, um, organization called Swimix, which worked with all the DJs in Sweden. And they they send vinyls uh, every month. But we went basically through all our collections of, 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 of vinyls, both Jonas and I, and we have thousands of albums and 12 inches and so forth. And we couldn't find one producer. So because we says, okay, if we have a magic wand, who do we want to work with? For some reason, we didn't even think that Quincy Jones fitted because we did have a Michael Jackson album there too. But we couldn't find somebody who we thought would fit our music that we, we knew we were missing something, especially in the beat and so forth, but we didn't really know what, and we listened to all it. nothing, nothing really fit. And then suddenly this white label comes and we, we play it and we hear this beat and we say, wow, this is what we've been looking for. Who is this? And uh, it took a while for us to realize the band was, there was a singer called Kayo. She didn't write a song, she didn't produce. And who is this producer? And the producer was called Dennis Pop. And um, so we wanted to meet this guy and it was completely unknown. So we went to Stockholm for a final trip and uh, went to the office. And uh, then uh, René Hedemir was the, the, the CEO of Swimix. He was there, but Dennis Pop was in the studio. He said, 
sorry, he's going to be busy for six months. He's working with this dentist and uh, working with the dentist. I mean, we are from Gothenburg. You have to listen to the demo. And he actually promised, yeah, I'm going to give this demo to, to Dennis Pop when he's done in the studio. So um, then we didn't really hear anything from this. Finally, the Danish, we got contact with the Mega, Mega Records and, um, and uh, they, they called back. And uh, at that time, it was actually one record company in Sweden who decided maybe these guys have something. But their biggest problem was at in the early 90s, uh, the record stores were, um, it was, first of all, it was obviously A, B, C, D in order, but it also was, it was rock, pop, synth, heavy metal, soul, jazz. And uh, this first record company, Telegram, they had no clue where to, how to label us because we did like, synth music, pop music, reggae, we did house music, electro, we did so many different styles. So we didn't know how to label it and how to market it. So we knew that when we recorded Wheel of Fortune that he had no clue what to do with us. At the same time, Mega Records calls us from Denmark who had the label coma and said, don't sign anything with anybody. We understand you. We understand all of your songs. And this is Martin Dodd from, from, uh, from uh, uh, Mega Records who later became head of... Uh, uh, Aenor at uh, at the Somba, and um, so he don't sign, and unfortunately, we already signed our several albums and so forth. But we had a discussion with the owner of 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 Telegram and what to do with us, right? And he said, actually, no, I don't. Uh, he just came back from from uh, London, and Acid was just a big thing, and Sirens. And, well, we're not an acid band. We're not. You don't know. Is it okay if we buy back the tapes uh, because we had recorded a video for? like $1,000 and the master tapes were like $2,000 for the single. And he said, okay, no problem. And then, so Mega Records basically bought us for a little bit less than $2,000, the whole contract. And uh, then we were signed to, to Mega Records. And then they released the first single and it just went straight up top 10 in Denmark. And then the same in Norway. And it was a big success. And I remember actually uh, uh, MTV, because we had this text TV, and uh, they had all the shorts from around Europe and also from Israel. And when we saw Wheel of Fortune number seven on the MTV text TV uh, shark in Denmark, that was actually one of the biggest moments in my life. Uh, I still remember it as yesterday when you saw, wow, we are on the shark outside of Sweden. It's fantastic, it was big. So then we, um, uh, we had to follow up with the second single. And then we thought, I mean, we have to work with Dennis Pop now because then we actually heard this dentist album and that was Dr. Alban. And uh, we thought, I mean, this guy really has something. So we called, and then when we called uh, Swimmings, they connected us to, to Dennis Pop immediately. Said, you know, he's been looking for you guys for six months, nine months, what? So we got hold of Dennis Pop and he said, um, Actually, I got the demo tape when I was in the studio going back and forth from home and recording Dr. Alban and the tape got stuck in my car. My radio was broken. I couldn't get the tape out. I've been listening to you on this tape, demo tape with eight songs for nine months now. And I really love your music. So he said, let's get to Stockholm and start working. And two months later, we recorded all the songs. And that's it for part one. In part two, Orff talks about the heights of fame and that attack on Jenny. I'll see you then. This holiday season, the best deal in wireless can only be found 
at Mint Mobile. Right now, when you switch to Mint Mobile and buy any three-month plan, you'll get another three months for free. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order and activate from home with eSIM. While saving tons on phone plans starting at just 15 bucks a month. For a limited time, buy any three-month Mint Mobile plan and get three more months free by going to mintmobile.com slash save. That's mintmobile.com slash save. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash save. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109.